The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So we've been studying, for people who are new um, to the center, we've been studying the Buddha's instructions he gave in a discourse, Mindfulness of Breathing, and uh, it seems like, from my point of view, the most complete set of meditation instructions. And even though it's referred to as Mindfulness of Breathing, it really includes the whole path. And initially... We do use the anchor, the actual experience of the breath, right in the forefront of attention. But then it moves into the background. It's still, we're still aware of breathing in and breathing out, but we're not bringing the attention to the physicality of breathing in and breathing out. We're really noticing some aspects of the mind for the rest of the instructions. And the breath really stays there as a kind of reminder, this is here and now. It kind of keeps the mind from, because it can be subtle, where we're sort of present, and then we're sort of lost in our thoughts about meditation. And we're not really meditating at that point. And the real, uh, what really uh, is needed for there to be a deepening of insight is a clear sense that this is here and now, that this is being known here and now. And when we lose that, then we're probably lost in thought or in some dreamy, semi, you know, being asleep or in a trance-like, dream-like place, which is actually, surprisingly maybe to some of you, it's really easy to get lost in those places, especially those of you who've been meditating a while. Just spending, <coughs> excuse me, one meditation period after another, after a few minutes, the mind just sliding into a dreamy, trance-like state. And the thing is, it it feels good. It's like a nice nap, except we're not actually asleep, although it has similarities to being asleep. But the important thing is there's no deepening of understanding. And that's what's ultimately transforming. As powerful as a quiet, nice nap is, or even better, a really deep state of concentration, which can be very liberating. But even more powerful is the deepening of wisdom, the deepening of understanding. Because... In Buddhist terms, we talk about, you know, when we are really honest with ourselves and reflective, we're interested in a happiness that's unconditioned, a peace, a freedom that doesn't come and go. Like we can have a lot of peace and a lot of freedom in a really deep meditation. The mind all comes together drops its interest in, you know, all of the likes, things I like and the things I don't like and the things I'm worried about and those things in my past that make me stressed when I remember them. It, it drops that, right? It, it turns inward 
and it turns inward because it's interested in that embodied well-being that maybe you touched into with the fourth instruction or the quietness of the mind which is the eighth instruction or the still silent mind that is empty of self-centered doing self-centered thinking right so that empty silent peaceful state right so that is sort of the doorway to absorption or jhana or deeper states of concentration and the thing about any of those deeper states is eventually the mind comes back to an ordinary state of consciousness with all of our ordinary neurotic tendencies maybe somewhat modified by the calm and the peace of our deep meditation but after a while even with the deepest meditation things get stirred up again right our you know just being around each other and being around the wider world all of any tendency i have towards loss towards hate towards wanting to become somebody wanting to fit in wanting to be liked as long as those underlying or latent tendencies exist in this conditioned mind you can pretty much guarantee that something out there or even my own thoughts about things are going to trigger those underlying tendencies and this is what can be so confusing to us because there are people you know who have a lot of spiritual wisdom and understanding that given the right circumstances the right triggers they can become just as neurotic as anybody else on the planet right and it's always a little shocking right like can you imagine you know seeing like just so happened to run into the dalai lama when he was really irritated <laughs> wait a minute you're the dalai lama i mean he may be beyond that maybe all those latent tendencies of irritation or desire attachment to desire have been uprooted which is why like with our our spiritual friends and our spiritual teachers we want to hang around you know sort of get a sense oh they look this way when they're in a particular setting but what do they look like you know behind the scenes and it's really good to know and that doesn't mean we should reject them as spiritual teachers it's just we want to know that not to reject them as a spiritual teacher but to tease out any idealism thinking that because what we actually see is a human being who has a conditioned mind like everybody else but the teachings and the confidence that can come from practicing the teachings that has a different quality there's a little kind of magnetism because we sense like we all have some kind of spiritual intuition like or maybe freedom release peace is really possible but it's like you know this age old thing in spiritual traditions is to confuse the messenger with the peace right nobody can do it for us even if we had a fully awakened person you know as a roommate or whatever maybe our cat <laughs> or dog or whatever but you know it wouldn't necessarily help us what helps us is 
to own, to kind of integrate the practice and the teachings and to basically we're finding, we're creating a natural process of letting go, of awakening, of dropping, of shedding, of abandoning what is it needed as a human being. And what allows that natural process to happen is that sensing of that inner pleasure of letting go. And so any kind of spiritual training you, you pick up, you should be able to tell yourself from your own experience, like, oh, this is why this feels good when I'm doing it right. It feels good not because I'm getting something, but because something is dropping away. Something that's often there is being shed or let go of. Like even that first, like when we start over and we've been distracted and we reestablish a sense of presence, being aware, remembering to be aware that this experience is being known. No, I know that's a bit of a mouthful, but you actually want your own way of repeating that back to yourself because then we're back in the place of learning. There's no learning unless there's some sense that this is being known. And we're remembering, oh yeah, this is the present moment and it's being known. It's synonymous, you know, because it's being known, it's the present moment. That's what we mean by the present moment. And it's so easy to forget, to lose that reflectiveness to be absorbed in the activity, which means to be absorbed in the wrong understanding that I'm doing this, I am this, I'm becoming this. Because it's not actually being absorbed in the doing, we're absorbed in the story of doing, the story of being. And then when there's the reestablishing of mindful awareness, we recognize whatever that is, it's something being known. I may be involved in a neurotic story about myself and others, but now wisdom recognizes, oh yeah, it's happening, and it's like this. It's happening here and now in the present moment. It's actually being felt. It's being known. So there's some freedom from the distractedness of being lost in thought, right? So already something is being abandoned. The identification with thought and the picture, the meaning that thought creates, that's being shed. And it's, it's being replaced by the recognition. Oh yeah, it's just a lot of neurotic thoughts, a lot of feeling going with those thoughts, all of it being felt, being known here and now any identification or attachment to all that mental content feels like this. So we're not, there's, there's the beginning and then when we take up the next set of instructions of being aware of the breathing in and breathing out, then we're really demonstrating that not only 
can I recognize the present moment, I can choose to be interested in something ordinary like breathing in and out and abandon this deeply held habit that I have to be responsible for all the predominant experiences that are coming and going. You know, that joke about, we joke about dogs, you know, when they see a squirrel. It's like all their training or whatever goes out the window, right? Because something more basic comes online. Squirrel, you know? And uh, we're a little bit like that with the diversity of our experience. And it's not just external things like what we see, what we hear, what we touch. But anything I think about, any memory that comes up, it's as real as actually seeing it in terms of what it can activate or trigger, right? And then the mind's off. Goes down that, takes that off-ramp, gets lost in that thought. And each one of those off-ramps, it has its own feedback mechanism that will last for a while. So when we choose to be with a meditation anchor, we're um, removing the mind, the attention, from things that trigger it. Because I'm bringing this fullness of attention to some ordinary process like breathing in and breathing out, I have some temporary immunity from other phenomena that might trigger all kinds of neurotic patterns. Because I'm just not paying attention. But I'm, it's not about the effort to not pay attention. It's the effort to be interested in something ordinary. So it really breaks the spell. Now, it seems like we're really doing something. But again, even this basic training where we use a meditation anchor is really about a letting go of the habit that I have to look at the squirrel. Well, that's a thought. That's a memory. I, I got to respect it. I'm remembering that memory, you know. So already there's a lot of wisdom in uh, being with an exclusive meditation object, there's already a lot of wisdom because basically the wisdom knows that all of the other experiences that attention could pay attention to, that it's okay not to pay attention to them. That takes wisdom. You know, you're sitting at home, you're alone, let's say, and there's an interesting sound. Now, when we're using the exclusive training, which isn't the only way we practice, of course, then that other sound in the other room, the ear still works. So it may be heard, unless there's really deep concentration in that moment, you'll probably hear that sound. But if there's some momentum with your like being specifically interested in the touching as the air goes in and the touching sensation as the air goes out or the feeling of the belly rising with the in-breath, falling with the out-breath, then it just makes barely a blip, right? It gets registered, or yeah, there's a sound, and then the attention's right back. Because it's we've cultivated an interest in the meditation object. And we've gotten to know there's a positive feedback loop, like dropping the attention to the diversity of experience means the mind begins to feel the pleasure of the unification, the coming together, 
the non-dissipated, non-scattered mind feels good. And short of some really strong signals, like the house is burning down, or there's somebody breaking into my house, or something like that, we just let that, yeah, that's that, but this is what this moment is about. And it it becomes its own sort of, uh, like we're cutting a groove, we're training the mind that in the appropriate setting, it's really appropriate, it's really wonderful, in fact, to put everything down. And the first step in putting everything down is to choose to be interested in one thing and bringing a fullness and continuous attention to one thing, like the process of breathing in and out, and thereby having, necessarily, having to let go of everything else, attention to everything else. And we experience the happiness of not having to pay attention to everything. And that's a very real happiness. But you have to feel it, experience it for yourself. I mean, I I sometimes tell the story, and this is back probably 84 maybe, but I had uh, just a couple years into my meditation practice and I uh, um, was teaching elementary school in the Bay Area, living in Berkeley, California, and uh, my old college friend and someone I lived with a couple years after college had moved there, was a grad student, and we lived together and we both had really gotten into meditation separately and then we were living together and we would sit every morning and sit every half late afternoon before we'd have dinner together and um, and we just just for a particular sit and you know the concentration was really good for whatever reason that sit and it, it was just so shocking I mean it wasn't like profound jhana or something like that it was just a good set you know where the mind was just continuously in the present moment had abandoned its habits of distractedness of feeling responsible for the different sense experiences but the thing that if the memory sort of is so strong is like it's shocking when we discover a kind of pleasure that doesn't depend on anything except letting go of the habit of needing to attend to and respond to every thought, every sound, every sight, every sensation, to be able to drop that. And you see, it already has, it's still conditioned, but it's different than so many of our other sense experiences because it's really the experience of non-attachment to our sensitivity, to our sights, sensitivity to the sounds, sensitivity to touches, to thought. And it's shocking to realize how much pleasure, I mean, more pleasurable than what we already know as pleasurable in our lives turning inward is pleasurable. And that really changes our relationship to ice cream and 
dancing and sexual experiences and playing with friends and petting the cat. And those are nice, I mean, they can be nice experiences, right? Really healing, wonderful. You don't give them up. But it, it just changes the orientation. Like now all of a sudden the mind is interested in meditation. Not like, I should. <laughs> My therapist tells me I should meditate. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so a lot of us, we come to it because it, it feels like good medicine, feels like we should do it. But what really makes it happen is when we sense in our own experience that thread of pleasure that's more trustworthy because in a sense nobody can take it away from us. It's like the deeper pleasure of letting go exactly what experience might arise for us where we couldn't let go of attachment. Like what could happen in our lives on our deathbed our partner leaving us, winning the lottery, what was it, uh, over a billion dollars? I guess someone won, right? You know, so any kind of shocking good or bad thing, I'm not sure winning the lottery is a good thing, but in our mind, in our conditioned mind, it might appear that way. But whatever might happen, it's like uh, the non-attachment, the letting go, that happiness is so much more resonant and trustworthy then because I was just reading uh, I forget where it was but it's just an essential teaching from the Buddha but somebody was commenting on this teaching you because know, the Buddha would always summarize what his teachings were about as suffering and the end of suffering but the deeper meaning of that teaching the Buddha is actually saying that as an ordinary human being, the happiness we know is the happiness of dukkha being dropped. So when we get ice cream, let's say we like ice cream and we get some ice cream, that's the happiness, not of the ice cream, but of the desire for the ice cream ceasing because we're gratifying the desire. So the desiring which is a contracted state. Oh, I've got ice cream at home. I don't. Because I ate it. <laughs> I used to have ice cream at home. But if we did have something good at home, you know, and then we're thinking, yeah, this is going to end sometime, and I'll be able to go home. But that, it looks exciting on the surface. It's juicy. But underneath, it's painful. It's a contraction that will be released soon as we're there with the ice cream, it's not even the taste or the coolness or the creaminess or the sweetness. It's the release of the grip of desire. And then, because that, at an ordinary level, that release of the grip of desiring is so pleasant that we start to desire something else. We create, concoct the dukkha, the suffering, of desiring to get another hit of the release of desiring when we gratify that desire. You see the setup? So the deeper wisdom is just understanding the setup 
and not playing the game anymore. Still a human being, still knowing the difference between oatmeal without any salt or sugar and ice cream, right? We know the difference between what we like and what we don't like, but we're not interested in that game of contraction and release. Because we see the whole picture. You know, if we really saw the whole picture, we wouldn't be spellbound. We imagine, like I have many, many times, you know, the perfect retreat cabin. But each of us, we have our own version, the perfect partner, the perfect home, the perfect job, the perfect body, the perfect meditation practice the perfect world, we treat each other fairly, excuse me, nobody's taken advantage of. And then, you see, if we really have that breadth and depth of awareness, wisdom awareness, we really comprehend what's going on, we see, like, oh, this moment can't be okay peace, ease, because it's like this. But when I get what I want, then I can release the grip. But where's the grip? It's right here, in the heart, in the mind itself. And I know it it feels like uh, as provocative as anything, but I think it's really worth contemplating. When you have a life like you have, a body like you have, a mind like you have, age, the age that you have, living in the world like this world, is it okay for the heart, body to be released? And it's just interesting how arrogantly certain we are that the answer is no. (laughs) It's not okay to be at ease. Because I haven't, I'm still not there in my meditation practice. Or I still, you know, my relationship with my partner is less than perfect. Or I have dishes in the sink. Or I haven't gotten to shape yet. Or the world is the way that it is. I still haven't completely unpacked my racial conditioning. So I should be bound, I should be tight, because I haven't done that work of really, I'm not saying we shouldn't do that work, it's just a question of whether we're in this unconscious way, arrogantly thinking we should be suffering because we're still an imperfect human being. And like, does that make the, the deepening, the becoming a wiser, kinder human being, does it grease the wheel? Suffering? <laughs> no. <laughs> Suffering just, you know, when we're contracted, when we're tight, when we're afraid, it just makes us less able to learn what we need to learn. We're just a less effective human being because we're burdened by that grip in our heart. And this really points to, you know, for the next, for the rest of this fall, I'll be on my own retreat in December. Uh, Shelley will be teaching next week, Shelley Graf, 
Kama Grun's other guiding teacher. Um, but I still have a number of Sundays to teach before the end of the year. And we're going to be looking at this fourth tetrad in the 16 instructions. And so we've gotten to the point with the first four that we can be open to the body. And you can think of the body, not just the physicality of the body, but seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and harmonize. Now the body, bodily experience, what we're sensing through the five physical senses, it's never going to be perfect. But we're harmonizing it, harmonizing with it no matter how it is. And that's what leads to that embodied calm. Not that we have a perfect bodily experience, but that we're relating to the bodily experience with a lot of space. We're dispassionate, you could even say, like, this bodily experience is good enough to relax. Doesn't mean it's the way I want it to be, that my knee might be really hurting, I might be cold, and I might be irritated by somebody making sounds in the room, you know, and there may be a bright light shining in my eyes. But I can open to the totality of my physical experience, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and I can rest in an embodied calm. And that calmness comes not because the bodily experience is the way I want it to be, but because the mind that knows isn't in conflict with the bodily experience. And then with the second tetrad, second set of four instructions, we're doing the same thing but with something more subtle, the activity of the mind. And in particular, this part of the activity of the mind we call feeling tone. Because every time, with every sense experience, the mind senses it as pleasant, unpleasant, or somewhat neutral, mixed. It's like, based on past experience, like even seeing the people in the room, this visual experience that I have, you know, is what it, it has a feeling tone associated with it. And this dispassion with our mental activity, it's like that whole, the whole picture, the whole movement of heart and mind, emotion, thought, memory, perception, the feelings that we have about all sense experience that we're having, all of that is mental activity. And especially with the feeling tone, because it, it, seems, it seems like it's the primary trigger for a lot of those vortexes that we get caught in, trapped in. So because we've been emphasizing the joy and ease, that's step five and six, and really keeping joy and then that more resonant happiness, sukha, ease in mind, then with that sense of contented ease, uh, undefendedness, then I don't, that gives the heart some immunity to notice the mental activity without taking the bait, thinking I have to do something because of this thought, this memory, this perception, this feeling tone that I'm feeling. It's just stuff. 
I mean, think about how many different feelings, unpleasant feelings, pleasant feelings. It's like the thought of chocolate and the pleasant feeling that just comes with the thought. It's amazing how much we're willing to do. But it doesn't last that long. And I don't know if you've really paid attention, but the idea of chocolate is more pleasant than chocolate, especially now that we think we need to eat just the really dark chocolate. <laughs> it's just interesting how, and, and a little disconcerting when we realize the things that have been, that we're conditioned to experience as pleasant, like what that experience actually is. It's something, I'm not saying it's nothing, but it isn't what we thought it was. And it, this has to do with that, let's see, fifth, sixth, seventh step, where we're observing mental activity, and in particular, the ephemeral, insubstantial nature of the feeling tone. Because if we don't really observe the insubstantial nature of the pleasantness and unpleasantness and neutrality of experience, it's going to push us around. And the way we do this, this is something to do all day long. Just to recognize, just ask yourself, like, is this pleasant? Is this experience pleasant now or unpleasant or somewhat mixed? And then whatever it is, just track it and see if the pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neutrality of the experience should be really driving your choices. Maybe it's just okay. Like even before the program began, I sort of needed to pee, but I, I was sort of behind with all the stuff I have to do to get set up. I just, oh, it's okay. And it's just interesting, like some of you know this, like if, when you need to urinate and you're meditating, if the mind gets into that vortex like this unpleasant physical sensation is not okay, it can get amplified and it can feel like life or death. Like somehow, and it's not easy when you're the person in the front of the room, but somehow, you know, or you're in a car ride and you know, like, okay, it's 15 miles. I could pull over, but I'm in the city, so. <laughs> and it's amazing how painful that can be. But then, and then interestingly, you get distracted and you think about something else and all of a sudden the need to urinate isn't a problem at all. And it's that idea that this unpleasant feeling is dangerous or this pleasant feeling that I'm going to have when I get this is going to change my life. It's the story about the pleasant, unpleasant and neutral feelings that are intoxicating. But the experience of pleasantness, unpleasantness, and neutrality itself, it's not such a big deal. It's something, but it's not such a big deal. Now the place to practice this isn't with the most intense pleasures and pains, but just with the ordinary pleasantness. Like when you're eating something for lunch today that's pleasant, Get interested in the pleasure. Like, what is the pleasure that I'm experiencing? What is it? And don't don't tell yourself, I'm a Buddhist, so it shouldn't be much. Just get interested. <laughs> what is pleasure? And when you're doing something that's unpleasant, 
really get interested in the unpleasantness of it. What is unpleasantness? Because this is what liberates the mind from the spell that drives so much of the show, so much of the activity of our lives. And this is that second kind of dispassion. It's dispassion, let's just you know, focus it more on the feeling tone. But the fourth tetrad that we're going to be spending the rest of the fall on, it's more profound. It's really dispassion. I know you won't necessarily like this because it doesn't sound good. It's dispassion with existence itself. That's the fourth step where we're aware of the changing nature, the ephemeral, insubstantial, unsatisfying, impersonal nature, whatever we're aware of, the breath, thoughts coming and going, sensations coming and going, it doesn't matter. But we're aware of it in a way that naturally leads to dispassion with existence itself. So it's like we're really sensitive, really profoundly intimate with the present moment, with existence, let's say. But we're realizing that there is absolutely no need for any grasping or dependence on the experience. Which also means there's no need to push it away. No need to get something from my experience right now and no reason to reject my experience right now. And this is what we mean by dispassion with existence. When there's enough momentum to that dispassion with existence, then the next step, so it's, you know, the last four instructions, observing the changing nature, ephemeral nature, insubstantial nature, observing this dispassion, no need for grasping, no need for attachment or identification, It doesn't add anything anywhere to anyone. To cessation, where the mind experiences a moment where it's not adding anything to the moment. It's not projecting anything. So it's, again, it's a letting go. We talk about it as a moment of cessation where the mind doesn't do anything. And the mind realizes this when the mind isn't doing anything. It's a change, it's a powerful experience. And then letting go, the relinquishment, which is the last, is understanding this way for the mind to be without projecting, without doing, without any self-centered projection at all in any way. It really, the mind sort of understands another way of being, where we're You know, as long as the karma of this life continues, breathing, existing in this sort of earthly sense, activity, nature still continues, but there's nothing extra happening. So it's just nature. So no psychic weight to that activity. You still choose, you still laugh, you might cry, you might even do a backflip. You know, you'll do whatever is the appropriate thing to do as you navigate your life and fulfill your duties and responsibilities. But it's the activity of nature. Somebody once asked the Buddha, I'll end with this point, uh, asked the Buddha, 
this sort of classic question in uh, Indian culture at the time of the Buddha, you know, what happens to an awakened one upon death? Because, you know, part of the culture is the strong idea of rebirth. And so then the question is, well, if you're a fully awake, liberated person, what happens? Do you get reborn? And instead of answering the person directly, the Buddha said, even now, as you see me, you know, so you could look at me or someone in the room, you know, you're projecting a somebody there. It's like, we don't ask, like, uh, this cloudy day, you know, what happens to the cloudy day? It, it will change. But we don't worry or wonder, like, where did this cloudy day go? You know, like, whatever it was like yesterday, where did that go? And, and that's what the Buddha said to them. Like, even now, you're misunderstanding what this is. You're congealing a thingness to me in a way that does not apply. Because that was not the Buddha, you know, presumably as an awakened being, was not the Buddha's experience to be a somebody. So we always think, oh God, I don't know if I want to disappear and be a nobody. <laughs> but that's not the awakening process. The only fall thing that falls away is ignorance, the wrong understanding of what this is. Whatever this is, it's nature. It continues its natural unfolding causes and conditions. What drops away, what shed, is the wrong understanding, the sort of projection of a thingness, of a permanence, which then we en endlessly have to defend, which is so stressful. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.